Welcome to Food for Thought. Your table is now ready. Your servers will be Nate Geary and Bruce Nolan. Our specials today are cold, hard facts and fresh, hot takes. Can I get you started with... I'm sorry, just one moment. Can I get a little energy in here? Good evening and serving it up to you live on the Buffalo Rumblings podcast and vidcast network. No Bruce Nolan. This week's here stuck with me, Nate Geary, on another Food for Thought, a show combining two of your three favorite F words. That's right, food, football, and the third is obviously this week, fish fry. Get your mind out of the gutter. Obviously, it's fish fry, people. Uh, I have been getting berated and... um, just used and abused on the internet in terms of my takes on never trying or wanting to try fish fry. So fish fry and getting fishy is the theme of this week's food for thought. I've also got a tremendous lineup scheduled for you this evening here on food for thought. We've got Chris Trapasso of CBS sports going to make uh, I believe his second or third appearance here on food for thought. We're going to talk some NFL combine. The running backs are currently testing on the field, 40 yard dash times, all that's coming up. And uh, I've also got Tim Graham from the athletic in the second portion of tonight's show, obviously with no Bruce, I will be rolling solo. So I'll have two guests tonight to talk a little bit about uh, a, the bills, new stadium updates, rumors this week that it was a done deal. Tim Graham started that original report earlier in the week, so we'll get his thoughts on where that progress has gone, what the potential holdups are, and, uh, and 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 what the potential details here are over the next couple of weeks. And then heading over um, for his next report, or his very following report, following some of the updates on the stadium, was that the Bills were interested in a potential signing of Rob Gronkowski this offseason. So we'll talk to uh, we'll talk to Tim a little bit about what that means for the Bills, and uh, you know ultimately how that might look and play out and you know, what, what kind of room is, is it, is it the bills wanting Rob Gronkowski more than Rob Gronkowski wanting the bills? Is there a mutual interest? We'll find out more from our very own Tim Graham from the athletic before we set the stage for tonight's show. I wanted to quickly remind everyone that super chats today, of course, you can uh, post your comment in YouTube and under super chats, any super chat that exceeds or starts at $5 is automatically getting one of these sweet, cool Genesee brewing company, Genesee beer, pine glasses they're very nice i've got a whole bunch here over my uh what is this this is my over my right shoulder that we'll be giving away over the next couple of weeks i've also got a great giveaway that we're going to be working on over the next couple of days that we'll be doing on twitter so make sure you're uh, you're paying attention for that and uh another thing to remind you since 1878 genesee has poured generations of brewing knowledge into each pint can and bottle of their beer they make no sacrifices when it comes to their beer brewing each with the highest quality ingredients for a consistently great drinking experience look for genesee beer genesee light cream ale and their specialty line with beers like ruby red kolsch and oktoberfest genesee brewing rochester new york all right so before we get into our guest chris trapasso which will be coming up here in just a few short minutes i wanted to go through some of what we have going on this week and on food for thought and of course our hors d'oeuvres for this morning or this morning, this afternoon, this evening. And I'm thinking this morning because all week this week, I filled in on the morning show for Howard Simon with Jeremy White um, on on WGR. And, you know, early throughout one of the shows, maybe it was the Tuesday show, Jeremy was talking about fried fish or fish fry here in Buffalo, New York. And if you're from Western New York, you know how much people during Lent on Fridays love eating fish fry. Never had it. Never had fish fry, never tried fish fry, have never wanted to try fish fry. My sister, my dad, they're big fish fry eaters, never have had the desire to eat fish fry. I think for the most part is because of the repulsive smell. I'm just not a fan of fishy smell. And I'm frankly, I'm not much of a fan of seafood as it stands. So when you put in the fried fish aspect of this, 
that's really where people start to lose me. And my cousins who, if you follow me on Twitter and you follow food Twitter, which I'm sure you do, if you're watching, if you're listening to Food for Thought, there's a good chance you've got your fingers and your pulse, uh, the fingers on the pulse of the Western New York food scene. You're following a uh, you know a group on Twitter called Buffalo uh, uh, Buffalo Eats. I'm sorry, my girlfriend's Instagram feed is Buffalo Foodie, so I got that con- confused there for a little bit. If you're not following my girlfriend on Instagram on her Buffalo Foodie page, please do. Uh, but Buffalo Eats on Twitter, uh, my cousin. And uh, my cousin Donnie, who started Buffalo Eats probably 100 years ago because he's old, um, he started Buffalo Eats. And my other cousin, Mark Goodwin, who has been on the news a couple of times when they had their bracket of, uh, you know, like greatest Buffalo meal um, over the last couple of weeks, they are doing a fish fry sort of ranking, which unfortunately I have no ability to provide expert opinion on because, again, I have never tried fried fish here abroad. I've been to London, never got fish and chips because, again, it is not something at all I find appetizing. So uh, Buffalo Eats was on Channel 4, WIVB, this evening doing their, you know, release of the of the fried fish, fish fry bracket. And, uh, of course, you know, they throw me under the bus on TV because, like a normal person, listen, like, Bruce Nolan is infamous for the classic line of, like, let people like things. I am of the mind that just like we should let people like things, we should also let people hate things, which in my case uh, is fish fry. I just, and maybe hate is strong. And I think that's probably why a lot of people are getting on my case because I say that I hate fish fry. JR, what's going on, my friend? Uh, Glad to have you back. Um, To say that I hate fish fish fry, but never have actually tried it, I guess makes my argument about why I don't like it a little hollow. Um, But listen, I, I, I know the things that I like. I know the things that I would enjoy. And nothing about fish fry when I go out, especially during Lent, and especially you go out to a restaurant in Western New York that serves fish fry during Lent. I mean, you walk into the restaurant and it, it's it smells like a fish market. And that is just not to me like an appetizing and inviting thing to smell when you're going to eat dinner. So even when I'm sort of forced to go with my girlfriend or for friends that want to go get fish fry, I'm not really into it because, A, yeah, sure, I could go get, you know, chicken wings. That's the worst thing you could possibly do, people, is go to a Buffalo or Western Yorker anywhere during Lent that's serving fish fry and getting chicken wings or another fried substance that they're cooking in the same fryers they're cooking that fish fry in. Like, there's probably no nothing less appetizing than eating a chicken wing that's been cooked in the same fryer as 100 beer-battered fried fish. I mean, that is an actual nightmare sin, uh, situation playing out for me in real time. Like, So when when people are like, hey, Nate, just uh, we'll, we'll go out for, for fish fry. You can just you know eat whatever. I, that also doesn't really work for me because, again, the last thing I want to do is bite into my you know, hot chicken wing and have like hot fishy chicken wings. That's like the most repulsive thing I can absolutely think about. Um, Like there's probably nothing worse than that. So yes, I am not a fan of fried fish and uh, you're likely not going to convert me. So don't even try really. I mean, people have been for probably the last 48, 72 hours on Twitter, been trying to convince me that I've got to try fried fish. And here's a picture of this beer battered fried fish. And here's a fried fish from this place in Western New York. And Hey, listen, like, I, and and I feel bad because, you know, Big Ditch Brewing Company, who's, um, you know, a great establishment downtown. I like Big Ditch for a lot of things. I love Hayburner, right? Um, they make a fried fish. And I felt bad because everyone's kind of coming at me as I respond back to like, hey, that looks really good, but I don't want to eat it. So, like, this isn't a shot at you, Big Ditch. I really love Big Ditch food. I really like Big Ditch beer. Um, this is not a shot at your particular fish fry. It's just trash and I don't want it. Um, so don't take offense. If you're a restaurant out there on my Twitter feed, don't take offense. It's not that I don't like you. It's not that I don't like your meals. I just don't like fish fry. And if you're serving fish fry, I'm probably going to stay away for a little while. Because, again, I'm not looking to have fishy chicken wings. Who the hell would want that, by the way? So just think about that the next time you bring your non-fish fry eating friends with you. Have a little – think a little courteously. Think ahead of time. You know, Maybe you want to go a place that doesn't just have fried food, right? Like Go a place you can go get a nice beef on weck or something that is not going to be anywhere near the fryer during Lent on fish uh, fish Fridays because that to me that is just easily one of the worst things you could do from a friend perspective 
is have a group of friends that are all eating fish fry and you're the lone guy that refuses to eat it. And then you're forced to eat the chicken wings out of the fish fry fryer. There's nothing worse than that. So make sure, be a good friend, be a courteous friend. Next time you're going out, make sure you know who among your group of friends is not the fish fry eater and make sure you're bringing them to a spot that, uh, you know, that fits everyone in the group, especially us non-fish fry eaters. All right. Uh, that takes me to our very first guest of our show tonight. And if you didn't know this, we have several, no, just two guests. We've got Chris Trapasso, who's joining us here on the Genesee Brewing Company hotline. Chris, uh, good evening to you. Sorry to pull you away from the running back 40 times. I'm happy that I'm away from it right now, Chris, because Kyron Williams just ran a 472 on his first 40. So I'm hoping that score gets better, but I think I'll stay away until I know for sure. No, thanks for having me, Nate. Uh, and I, it's been, even these first two nights, a pretty long marathon to watch all of these guys run over and over and do the on-field drills. I like to see the combine like from afar afterward, like looking at a Google sheet that has all the numbers. But in terms of literally watching the combine, I can see how a lot of football fans get excited, watch the first 30 minutes, and then turn yeah. it off because it is kind of boring and it's a really long event. Smart of the NFL to make sure the quarterbacks go early in this so that yep. you can get and that out of the way. Too, and the receivers night. and quarterbacks, yeah, yep. we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. And just a reminder that our guests on the Genesee Brewing Company hotline are brought to you by, you guessed it, Genesee Brewing Company. Looking for Springbok in stores and bars and restaurants today. Genesee Beer, brewed for generations. All right, Chris, so let's hop in to the combine. Let's do what every show, every podcast is going to do. And I'd like to hear some of your winners and losers from yesterday. We'll talk a little bit about some of the guys we saw on the offensive line today as well. But let's talk about yesterday because yesterday was sort of a historic day, Chris. Um, eight wide receivers testing at sub 4-4 in this wide receiver class. Chris, I, have we seen a draft class of wide receivers with this level of athleticism? No, we haven't. The closest, uh, especially most recently, the 2019 draft class that had DK Metcalf, Andy Isabella, Terry McLaurin, Paris Campbell from Ohio State, Emmanuel Hall, Missouri, uh, Johnny Dixon, I think was right around there too, another Ohio State guy. So we've seen, I think, seven in the same draft class before, but to have eight last night was sensational. Now, I will say, not to be a Debbie Downer, a lot of those prospects that ran really fast aren't really great players, and I don't think we should move them from like seventh-round picks up to third-round picks. We'll hear some of that speculation over the next few days right after the combine before we hit that hard reset because there's free agency. But in terms of pure speed, I think today's NFL, even though it is a high-percentage throw league, get it out quick, it is also a big play, a splash play league, hitting those explosive plays down the field. I think you see most of the elite offenses like the Bills, like the Chiefs, are very good at creating those big plays. And the easiest way to do that is not scheming it up. It's just having pure speed at the receiver spot. So you mentioned several names from that 2019 class that tested very highly. Not all of them have been able to make an impact in the NFL. And that's sort of what I wanted to, to sort of remind people about, because I can't tell you how many tweets I saw of this guy's not making it out of thir past 13. And all of a sudden <laughs> we've got 27 wide receivers. This guy's not making it out of round one. And, and listen, I, I, I know that in the moment, these testing scores, they tend to take the front row seat. But Chris, yeah. we all know that it's the interviews, it's some of the drills, it's some of the things that they're going to get from the coaches, from the scouts, from these from these one-on-one -on -one meetings that they're having with teams. Uh, yesterday, when you look at the testing, though, that's what fans are seeing. How much does a guy like Chris Olave, um, you know, running what he did? Obviously, his unofficial time was four two six. He tested a little bit higher in the four threes, which probably makes sense um, coming after that, but. Like all in all, how many guys actually helped themselves by running a 40 time that was maybe a little lower than you thought going into that uh, wide receiver group yesterday, Chris? There were certainly a few, but that's a great point that you bring up. I mean, everyone expected Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, the top two wide receivers from Ohio State, to run probably sub 4-3, especially when we saw Chris Olave measure in at around 6'1 and under 190 pounds. It's kind of a new age for the yeah, size right. and shape of wide receivers. We're not seeing these 6'4", 220, 225 types anymore. I think a lot of agents and a lot of teams are probably advising these prospects, hey, come in lighter. The whole league is getting lighter. Linebackers, safeties, wide receivers, running backs. We've seen a lot of smaller running backs tonight. 
in Indianapolis. So I think a few helped. Uh, Tyquan Thornton from Baylor looks pretty fast on film. I don't know if he looks four to eight fast. And what I think for a lot of these lower level guys that, like you mentioned, are now being talked about as second round picks or sneak into the back part of the first round. I think if anything, the really impressive combine workouts just give a reason for teams to take a flyer on them late. And that's completely fine. If Tyquan Thornton, who averaged over 17 yards per catch in his freshman and sophomore seasons at Baylor, if he ran four five Oh, with decent stats, not a lot of high volume production to his game, he probably doesn't get drafted now because of that four to eight, he will ultimately get drafted just on that speed alone. So I think in terms of um, the guys that we expected, like Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, that wasn't really anything that boosted their stock, but Danny Gray from SMU running four, three, three, Alec Pierce from Cincinnati running four, four, one, like it will help their stock, but I don't think it's going to move them up three or four rounds in late April. And and Chris, like talking about a guy like Traylon Burks, who going in, to this week was sort of expected to be on the higher end of, of, of a lot of those testing areas, a 33 inch vertical jump, 122 on the broad jump and a four, five, five. Those aren't necessarily numbers. I think a lot of people were expecting. Did you, do you expect those numbers in the combine to hurt him or is what people see on film and what he did at Arkansas enough for him to still be in the conversation for wide receiver one in April? I think he'll still be in the conversation. Uh, ultimately, though, if you look back at in terms of when we're saying wide receiver one, we're, we're meaning the first receiver off the board. Do I still think Traylon Burks will be the number one receiver on some team's boards? Absolutely, because of what you mentioned. His film is sensational. It is uh, what we're kind of looking for at the receiver spot. If you can't always get open, you got to be this big physical specimen after the catch. And we've realized the NFL collectively, fans, media members, that the yards after the catchability is not so much being Roscoe Parrish or Tavon Austin. It's being Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, or Traylon Burke, 6'2", 225. It's no surprise that he ran a little bit slower and didn't have the same explosiveness as some of his contemporaries in this draft class because he's kind of a throwback type. He's sized like A.J. Brown, uh, maybe not as explosive as A.J. Brown tested at the 2019 Combine, but he's that type of wide receiver and just spin it to the bills. If they want more yards after the catch in this offense, it's fun to think about a really explosive dynamic athlete. Traylon Burks could help this offense get better after the catch more than any other receiver in this draft class because his contact balance and power through contact are better than any of the top wideouts in this draft class. Chris, we'll get to some quarterbacks here in a minute, but there's a couple other wide receivers I wanted to go over with you, particularly from the angle of what the Bills could potentially do. We hear the news today that the Buffalo Bills have given Cole Beasley and his representation um, the ability to go out and potentially find a trade partner. We know that Emmanuel Sanders is unlikely to return, and we don't know what the destiny of Isaiah McKenzie is. So that leaves what I believe to be a very strong position for the Bills going into last season. One that has not only room for maybe one draft pick, but potentially two with this draft class, considering how deep it is. Another guy that I know you've been on it from the start here, Chris, is Sky Moore um, out of Western Michigan. I, you know, the, the testing numbers, I think, really did him well just in confirming the things that if you wanted to see speed on the field, you can find it on the film. And I think what you wanted to do with more is confirm it with numbers. And, and, and I think with a four, four, one forty, he did that. Talk a little bit about what you like about more, what he thought of his testing numbers yesterday. And if there's a potential fit that you see for him in this bill's offense. I think he's a fit in any offense and he would be tremendous. I think he would be hit the ground running type of wide receiver, almost an instant star with Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs. Uh, alongside him in Buffalo. It's funny that he got kind of labeled as a smaller wide receiver, but he was just under 5'9 and 195 pounds. I would urge all the viewers tonight, all your listeners on WGR, to pay attention to the height and weight of all of these prospects and consider those when you're looking at verticals, 40-yard dashes. To run 4-4-1 at such a compact frame was really, really impressive from Sky Moore. And anyone that's watched UB that watches the Mac, Sky Moore was the star in that conference over the past two or three seasons. He had 94 catches this past season for the Broncos. 
he gets off the line of scrimmage, I think, as well as any receiver in this draft class. Uh, routes are very sharp, good after the catch, because like Traylon Burke, just a smaller version of him, plays like a running back after the catch. Um, and contested catches are his forte, I think. He had huge hands, over 10 inches. So he's someone probably in the second round, but don't be surprised if we start to hear some late first round buzz for him that with the Bills right now, does it feel like they would pick Sky Moore at 25? Probably not, but depending on how free agency goes, mm-hmm. the rest of this wide receiver class, it, I would not hate it. I think Sky Moore is that good. I have a late first round grade on him. Actually, I think mid first round grade. Forget that he's playing in the MAC. He has a very well rounded skill set. And the last thing, he was a freshman All American. He didn't just dominate mm-hmm. at 23 or 24 years old. He wasn't a sixth year senior that got that extra year from right. the COVID season. He's young, he's 21 years old and proved that from the jump in the college game, he was going to be a star. So I think Sky Moore would make a lot of sense in this offense. I I think you could plug him in to that slot role and give, like we talked about earlier this week on on, uh, GR, more of a dynamic down-the-field threat from the slot that Cole Beasley, especially this past season, was not able to give the Bills offense. Another guy in the same breath of Traylon Burks, um, just in sort of how he's used in the variety and variations he's used is Christian Watson from North Dakota State. And obviously he started making those inroads at the Senior Bowl a few weeks back, Chris, and some of the numbers that he was able to put up, a 38.5-inch vertical jump and a 4.3640. Where does he fit in in the NFL? Is this a traditional you know, boundary receiver? Is this a guy that you believe that's going to play in the slot? Or is this a guy that is likely going to have to try to find a role that a team can get, a you know, can get creative with him. More so the latter uh, out of those options that watching his film at, at North Dakota state, it was a very run heavy offense. I saw a very linear player in that he being six, four, having that speed that he now confirmed at the combine running sub four, four jet sweeps, end arounds, go routes, post routes, uh, maybe get him the ball on wide receiver screens. I didn't see Christian Watson, even against FCS competition, making a lot of guys miss, running through tackles. He's kind of a weaver through traffic, kind of glides on the football field, long strider, but definitely has that explosiveness. So I, I don't know if he can come in and be that outside receiver number two or number three for any team or, or certainly the Bills, but you definitely, if you have a smart offensive coordinator, can use 6-4 with that type of explosiveness that he showed in the jumps and in the 40-yard dash. Just think he needs to be kind of used initially, at least, as more of a gadget player that can hit those big plays on jet sweeps and on end arounds in the NFL. I know that there may not be a direct correlation with the Bills in this quarterback class, Chris, but I, you know, this quarterback class has sort of been dubbed you know, one of the weaker ones, especially over the last couple of years, certainly at the top. But the more and more you start to bear down in this quarterback class, the more and more you see value in the late first round going into the second round. Guys that have a little, have a ceiling you believe you might be able to work towards. Uh, Who in your mind did the best uh, or did the most for themselves, at least in the throwing portions of this uh, of, of yesterday's combine practices. And we'll talk a little bit, um, Chris, about some of the testing scores and some of the athletic profiles. But in your mind, was it Malik Willis that really sort of set himself apart from his uh, counterparts in this quarterback class during those throwing sessions? Well, I mean, I would say Malik Willis probably would be the easy answer in that, yes, he did set himself apart, but most people – we're kind of expecting that because like you mm-hmm. mentioned, the rest of the quarterbacks um, clearly just on film did not have the same velocity and same ability to stretch the field that Malik Willis had. I think it was actually Sam Howell from North Carolina because with the down year mm-hmm. after being hyped as like the number one sure. or number two quarterback uh, to lose all the skill position talent, the two running backs and the two receivers in last year's draft class had the subpar season relative to the hype. I think he reminded everyone that he was a big recruit, almost committed to Florida State, flipped at the last minute to North Carolina, big-time production as a freshman, great sophomore season, and he can really rip the football down the field. He's a little bit smaller. Malik Willis is only just over six foot. Doesn't matter for his arm strength. I think Sam Howell, around the same size, not even close to the athlete that Malik Willis is, but in terms of throwing last night, I think he reminded everyone that he probably has – the second best arm talent in this draft class. 
And you know, Chris, I, I think the one thing that you want to look back at the 2021 season with Sam Howell and say it was a disappointment or he didn't live up to the hype. The thing that I keep taking from it is, is how impressed I was that he was able to sort of remake his game a year after losing two NFL wide receivers where you really got to see the arm strength, the downfield accuracy. I really love the trajectory on his deep ball. He throws a very catchable, very accurately thrown deep ball, which in the NFL in tight man coverage and, and, and the windows you're going to get down the field that's a premium in the NFL but to see him go from being a very minimal um you know I, I think threat on the ground to running for over 800 yards last season and still being able to throw for that th just over 3,000 Chris like I think that pivot or or that maturation of having to recognize that he doesn't have those deep threats that he did the year prior to sort of remake his game and still be a threat against defenses yeah and that's huge I think teams is certainly in most cases like to see, you know, 70% completion, 50 touchdowns sure. in the final season. But to me, and, and I feel like some teams have a similar viewpoint here that to witness a top tier quarterback go through a less than ideal situation and still come out on the other side, not completely ruining his draft stock, not having to transfer, not getting benched. I mean, that happened to Spencer Rattler. He was benched and now he's on a different or in a different program. It kind of shows a team, hey, what will Sam Howell look like if we don't have a perfect offensive environment around him? I, I always go back to Baker Mayfield in the Josh Allen draft class that my biggest ding on Baker Mayfield was that his skill position talent and his offensive line at Oklahoma, the advantages that they provided him, he was never going to see that again once he got to the NFL. And I think even the Browns have a great offensive line. Maybe the receivers aren't great. But that's been true. He, the best case that he ever had scenario in terms of just all the weapons around him was at Oklahoma. So for Sam Howell to not completely just bomb, just totally bomb his draft stock and, and still make plays with his legs, use them as a last resort like he needed to a lot, I think that will show teams that he is tough from a mental standpoint too, that, that he showed them, hey, even if we have a season where we're not great, where we lose some free agents, where a receiver gets hurt, I can still be decently productive. I have the traits to do that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. The last guy I want to ask you about at the quarterback position, you know, I think Kenny Pickett is a easy guy to talk about. I think he's likely going to be the second quarterback taken in this draft. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you want to go Matt Corral. I think that's fine as well. I think there's a there, there's a... In my opinion, I like how pro-ready Pickett is when he walks into the NFL game. But the, the guy I want to talk to you about is Desmond Ritter because I think he was the biggest question mark going into this draft because of the arm arm strength questions. Not that I thought on the field against air he was going to answer a lot of those questions, but it was good to see when he was matched up against or matched up with or after guys like Carson Strong that you didn't see a real noticeable drop-off in that arm mm -hmm. strength. His testing numbers are... I think opened some eyes. I, I was not expecting him to run a five four uh, or a four five and and a thirty six um, a thirty six inch vertical jump. What kind of athletic profile do you think Ritter with 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 that sort of athletic profile is he a guy that you think is helping himself in this draft process? Considering, I think the thing that makes evaluators most nervous is he has the strength, the arm strength to get the ball down the field. It's his at times it's his lower body that hurts him. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think he's done a lot for himself at the combine. That workout was one of the better workouts that we've seen from a top quarterback prospect in actually a long time. I don't think to your point about his lower half, I don't think that Desmond Ritter plays to that level of athleticism on the field. Um, there were times where he looked a little robotic and almost clunky when he was trying to get away from pressure at Cincinnati. But because he was a multiple-year starter, won a ton of football games, didn't make a lot of mistakes, uh, won some big games for a lesser program. I think people kind of went into the combine thinking, okay, this is your classic game manager. The traits aren't really through the roof, maybe second or third round. Now we know, at least in terms of timed and measured athleticism, he probably has first-round traits 
from that perspective. So he's mm -hmm. definitely done a lot for his stock. I think it's not a great quarterback class, but I think people are coming around on it. And if a lot of these veterans aren't ultimately going to be on the move, like Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson, we might see four, maybe even five quarterbacks go in round one because there are still a lot of teams that need to address that position. Chris, thanks so much, man, for hopping on with me to talk some combine. Tell the folks if if it's even like if you can get it down to like five different places where they're going to be able to find you here in the next couple of days as the combine continues to chug along. Yeah, I'm just still running the CBS Sports live blog at cbssports.com. I'll be trying to post some TikTok videos, but Twitter's usually the best spot if you want to gripe with one of my opinions or get after me about a food take that I have. Uh, but those sure. three spots over the next few days and throughout draft season, TikTok, Twitter, and at cbssports.com. Awesome, Chris. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate you. Enjoy the, uh, the rest of your evening tonight and uh, enjoy nice, these man. running back testing scores. Appreciate you, buddy. Will do. All right. That's Chris Trapasso there on the Genesee Brewing Company hotline. Uh, I don't waste time here on Food for Thought, and neither does my next guest. Um, Tim, first and foremost, thanks for joining us here uh, this evening, your second appearance on the podcast. It's just me tonight. So uh, I figured I would have someone that was at least equally as handsome as I uh, to come on the podcast, uh, but 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 no more handsome than me. No, equal. There's no surpassing your, your handsomeness. Uh, and uh, fun to be following a, a grinder in Chris Terpasso. That guy yes, fucked his indeed. ass. And uh, I think it's pretty good to balance to have uh, now a floater uh, come on and and a uh, guy who's just trying to you know, get to retirement. Right. Just getting from toilet to toilet is essentially, you know, just if, if you can get to the next one, it's a win. Right. That's right. Although I didn't realize <laughs> when I agreed to be on the show uh, that uh, it um, would be sponsored well, you, by that, uh, beer. You didn't, well, you didn't like the joke? Was, was it a bad joke? What are we? What happened here? Oh wait, no, now I hear you. Yeah, I think I think there was a little bit of uh, maybe, maybe we're being um, we were being censored a bit after my bad toilet joke. I don't know. <laughs> uh, can you have me now? Yeah, I got you. Okay. Can you hear me? All right. What kind of operation are you running here? Uh, it's a um, show. Who knows? The uh, the beer advertisement though is a bit offensive, and I'm going to have to ask you to maybe block that out or pixelate it uh, for the time that I'm on here because I can't abide by that. You know, you've never been known as a guy that uh, that hitches his wagons to corporate America and or any sort of alcoholic beverage. You're more of a malt guy, which I've always appreciated. <laughs> Real salts of the earth, you know. That's right. Yeah. I uh, I should have done something with uh, this rat's nest on the top of my head before ah. we got started. But all right, we'll soldier through. We'll soldier through. We'll, we'll make it happen. Listen, man, um, as always, appreciate you. I, I wanted to, to bring you on for a couple of reasons. Obviously, um, things are starting to come to a head on the stadium um, uh, discussions and negotiations, much to your reports uh, and reporting, and has been a long-term reporting here. Kind of, it's been a long-term process. Uh, what in your mind and 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 from your reporting, I, and by the way, I, I don't want to give away too much to the listeners out there. You're going to have to pay. By the way, keeping it in, I'd like to make a. I'd like to say something about um, people and their weird things about paywalls. Like, I, I do, is this something that? I guess I don't quite understand. Like, if you did your job and someone asked you to do it for free for their pleasure, I have a, I have a tough time grasping that. Now, listen, I do my job for free, so I guess I'm I'm the true idiot here. But like, you know, you feed your family with you know your journalism and Tyler Dunn and his journalism and his blog and his and these people, you know, they they come and they say, "Well, paywall? What is this? Pay pay for your work?" Yeah, I, I understand the choice of not wanting to subscribe because there are ways that you can get your information in, in other places. Sure. I, I tend to think that it's not as good uh, that way, uh, that you do get what you pay for, or at least the premium is there and it's worth the subscription to The Athletic or Go Long with Tyler Dunn or The Buffalo News or The New York Times or, or whatever you want to subscribe to. Um, it's generally worth it. Uh, but where I get a kick out of it is the need to declare uh, as though you're fighting this righteous cause uh, yes, of, right. uh, hey, everybody, look at me. I refuse to pay for a product. 
And then this was maybe a month or so ago. Um, I pushed back on somebody. I said something like, you know, well, whatever. We had a good run or whatever the hell I, I generally would say to somebody. Uh, and he's and he got pissy with me and said, from now on, I'm going to screen cap all of your stories and post them on my Twitter feed so people can read them for free because I think you're an a-hole. You know, I'm like, oh, great. All right. So you're basically saying I'm a thief and I'm going to I'm going to steal your content and I'm going to share it. I'm going to uh, copywritten material and I'm going to give it away for free. Uh, and it's just it's you're right. It's amusing to me the um, the hills that people will die on. Yeah. Oh, there are some good ones. And especially on Twitter. Twitter is the hill, by the way, that people die on. That That's where they go to die. Um, but anyways, I, I digress. I, I, I wanted to just at least acknowledge that because I found it really weird. It's not and, and it's only on like good stories. You know, you've got a story. You've got a piece about the updates on the stadium. And these are things that people want to be updated about. And if everyone had the scoop, you could have it for free. But not everyone's got the scoop. So that's kind of how this goes, everybody. I just I wanted to get that out there. Anyways, Tim, so let's talk a little bit about these um, these these negotiations in this process. Now, you know, I, I had from a little birdie going into this week that that it was possible Jeremy and I on the morning show um, were going to be talking about the actual proposal and it being done and signed and delivered. Uh, that did not happen. Um, what, in your estimation, are we sort of, quote, waiting on in this process? I think it's a political uh, delay more than anything else. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That sounds like I just said, you know, something really negative. But Kathy Hochul's in a situation where she is about to be confronted with a lot of enemies, including within her own party, uh, who may have aspirations to be the next governor of New York. This is an election year. She's going to be primaried. Um, and then she's going to have to uh, defeat uh, defeat the, the Republican candidate, too. So she has to be very careful with who she upsets. And so there's a delicate art here. And, and really why it matters is because a uh, billion dollars or, or a $1.4 billion stadium uh, is a massive amount of money and it's going to her hometown. And there's a possibility that that mm. could look badly for her, as innocent as it is. Her, her political opponents are going to use that. And then even her political allies will use that in such a way of uh, you know, something happening down in Binghamton, perhaps, or in Poughkeepsie and saying, hey, look, I'll be happy as state senator or state assemblyman to uh, vote your budget and without any issue. But this is something that we're going to need downstate or this is something we need in my in my county. Our people need this project to go through. Um, and so there's kind of like a shakedown element that goes uh, along with politics, too. So what she wants to do is she wants to delay this announcement. Um so that she doesn't have to face criticism or scrutiny uh, for as long as, as humanly possible. So I do believe that the deal is incredibly close to being done. Um, that's not to say that it's as though she's sitting on it. Um, in fact, she said today at her appearance here in Buffalo that there were some things that were still being worked out. It's not like they've just frozen it out and they're just they're in a you know running a four corners offense here running out the clock. There is still work that needs to be done uh, on the stadium, uh, on, the, on the entire stadium deal, because there's a there's a construction aspect to it. There's a lease aspect to it. Um, but I get the impression that it is so close to being done that all it would take is saying, all right, we need to hit this deadline, uh, that that everything is pretty much uh, in, in harmony in, in, among the three parties, that being uh, the bills, uh, the state and Erie County. So I think the funny or ironic part of this is just the machine that the NFL is. It's this global billion, multi-billion dollar business. And yet it still is sort of part of the real machine, which is the political machine and even state politics, even going down to the county, which is what you're talking about as well, which is another portion and another phase and layer of this negotiation, Tim. But like, I, I find it really interesting. I'm, I'm not suggesting the bills are some sort of pawn um, in the greater scheme of, of New York politics, but I don't think I'm not saying that because it does sort of feel like, you know, whether it wants to be posed as a political win for Kathy Hochul or rather posturing so that it doesn't appear to at least be a loss or a negative. Right. I do find yeah. it really sort of precarious in a position that 
the bills find themselves in because it seems like every party understands they want it done, but right. it's got to be an agenda somewhere along the line. And it's interesting too, because how is this going to be played out? And it's something that I mentioned, I did an FAQ on, on what happens next. And I, there's a belief, uh, about how this is going to be presented when it is announced. Will it be a press release? My guess is that that's what the governor's office would prefer. Uh, it's going to be like a, um, shh, you know, like, hey, we've approved this. Let's not do. It. Let's not let's, make a big deal of this. Right. We got the budget that's about to come out. And it's going to have two hundred. It's going to be a two hundred and twelve or two hundred and fourteen billion dollar budget or whatever it is. A billion going to uh, the bills is going to kind of get lost in the shuffle. You know, if you can if you can make the announcement close enough to you know the entire thing. Sure, because uh, it's news know, in, here in Western New York. Right. It's probably not rippling down downstate. Pro probably not, but it could. But sure. it could. So you have this omnibus bill that's just going to have a ton of stuff in it that you could probably pick apart, but it will take you a long time to really analyze the budget. It's just so massive. Um, so that's why you want the stadium kind of slipped in there a little bit. I'm not saying to say a, pull a fast one, but again, this is politics. You know, you're trying to finesse the situation. It's public relations. Um, and so uh, I do think th that... And I, I guess I've just distracted my, myself from the point I was going to make because I had too much word salad in there. Um, but the give me your question again. Yeah, oh, so oh, no, no, it was it was it, the okay. presentation, the presentation aspect of it. There's so yeah. many things that go into my mind when I'm talking about the stadium and I got all my different things about what I can say, things that I know but can't say sure. yet. Yeah. Uh, things that I'm supposed and the, to. And the, and the cosmic brownie in your head is telling you, no, 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 not <laughs> right. this one. Right. Okay. So there's a belief uh, that while the state would love to do this on the down low, or or at I, least do it with as little fanfare as possible, that the county would love to say, "Deal is done, everybody. Yep. The bills are staying," because that's a bigger deal, you know. For in terms of it, it's not as big of a political risk, obviously, for Mark Poland cars to come out with a big flashy announcement as it would be for Kathy Hochul, given her situation as. Uh, you know, uh, somebody who get, wasn't elected into the governor's mansion. She got it because of a scandal. She happened to be second in command, and now she needs to prove herself at the ballot box uh, and doesn't want to give anybody any unnecessary ammunition uh, uh, for that purpose. So um, it'll be interesting. But yeah, it's uh, that the way that this could be, this could play out is it might be a little bit of a tug of war as to how big they go with this announcement. Yeah, I'm sure. And and as, as someone that uh, that that does generally like Mark Poland cars, um, I imagine he would like this announcement like in a reenactment of like Rex and Rob Ryan on a on a dual tandem bike, you know, with the new deal in front of the stadium, because like, listen, I, I mean, from Mark's perspective, I can appreciate the fact that a guy that has been. the One of the more consistent faces behind these negotiations and what I'll say about Marcus, he has had a, a pretty consistent level of wanting balance in this negotiation, of wanting to look out for his constituents and for the taxpayers here in Western New York and Erie County, while also recognizing that if he's considered or looked at as the roadblock in these negotiations, um, that can go in the opposite direction as well. Like, I guess what we're talking here about is this very delicate juggling act and balancing act that politicians, if you're Terry and Kimpagula, you also probably want this announced in a very certain way. I would bet that Terry and Kim are probably more on Kathy Hochul's side because they don't likely want the, the, the details of how much the public is going to be actually ponying for this to be the news of the day. They want it to be, you know, the bills are here in Buffalo long-term, not Here's the percentage breakdown of what the county and what the state's going to be ponying up here. Yeah, here's how much these billionaires are getting. Uh, and at a time when yeah. NFL owners and sports owners uh, in general are not considered uh, very popular people, they're, they're villains. And a lot of that stems from what's going on with Daniel Snyder, the Brian Flores lawsuit against the NFL, the Broncos, the Dolphins, and the Giants. Uh, you have federal... Um, noses being stuck into the NFL's business. They don't like that. And the public uh, does not uh, 
have an appetite for giving an inch if, and probably not, I, I don't even want to say at the moment. I think these are over time. I think people just realize how, how filthy business can be sometimes. And just because it's, it's fun to watch on Sunday doesn't make uh, the people who wear the suits uh, um, especially easy to root for. Um, but to, to get this big amount of money from the public uh, at a time when it seems as though NFL owners are the type of people who uh, like to uh, cloak and dagger their way through life uh, with non-disclosure agreements mm -hmm. and payoffs. And you have, by the way, Jerry Jones uh, back in the news, a story that he probably thought was dead and gone uh, is revitalized because of an investigative piece at ESPN regarding a, a top employee uh, photographing Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders through a peephole. And I mean, it's just seedy stuff. And uh, I think that, you know, so I'm not saying that the Pagulas are in that circle, but I think from a general public standpoint, you have congressmen and congresswomen demanding hearings over what's going on with Daniel Snyder and racism in the NFL. They want investigations. They want um, you know, watchdogs uh, to be put on, on, on notice. And so yeah, it, it's it's an interesting time for the Pagulas, and, and I think really it, the the window may be shutting on this type of thing, and they might be getting in for their purposes at the, at one of the last possible moments in sports history, because the, the tides are are definitely turning uh, regarding government just willingly giving sports leagues whatever they need. You know, thinking about baseball with antitrust or the old blackout rules that the FCC used to allow the NFL to do to sell more tickets. Um, you know, there's all kinds of gifts that that the government has given professional sports over the years and um, and politicians are getting less and less charitable uh, and starting to actually go in the opposite direction and, and demand more. So it, it's it isn't it's a fascinating time in that regard. You know, I, I guess I hadn't quite considered the gravity of sort of the political environment in our country and how the federal government differs from the state differs from the from the county in terms of you know what people want and and maybe you don't look anywhere closer than you do at New York State where politics can differ um you know you walk to a different street corner here in New York State in just in Erie County alone and then you go to New York City compared to the rest of the state and and you start to paint a picture of how divisive things can be and 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 where we are as a country right now, I, I, I guess I hadn't fully appreciated that if this truly is one of the last publicly funded sports stadiums in, you know, national in domestic sports, I, I, I think that will be a, a real interesting future for Terry and Kim in, in as ownership. Uh, because I, I just think that, five, 10, 15 years down the line, Tim, and three or four new stadiums are built and they're all ponied up by ownership because state governments aren't going to pony up. And I think one of the things too, Tim, is this whole St. Louis lawsuit that still is just not making headlines whatsoever. Um, and what Stan Kroenke has done really to the league and stiffing them on a lot of the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars of payments that he, his relocation fees to LA, like, I just wonder five, 10, 15 years ago or a few years into the future, if this is one of those last ones, these last publicly funded stadiums in this market, if we come on some tough times, economic times here, Tim, I, I just wonder, and maybe I'm just talking from a place of anxiety, but I wonder if narratives turn on their popularity, if things change in the future and we're still ponying up for it. You know, the future of sports, it's hard to tell, especially yeah. with uh, technology the way it is and sports betting the way it is. Uh, the gate gets less and less important every every year for the NFL with every new television deal. They've made their money. They don't need to sell tickets as much. Um, you know, maybe these games start roving around. Maybe it's like the Harlem Globetrotters. You know, the NFL is coming yeah. to your town uh, in the year 2045 for a couple of weeks. You know, they're and doing listen, it already in Europe. You know, they're just well, sending right. games, you know, moving games around. Uh, and I don't think that we're necessarily going to get into where that's full time all the time. But and also I want to clarify this, too. I, I'm not I'm not suggesting that 
the Pagulas are getting in at, at the last possible minute. No. Like Indiana Jones rolling under the door and grabbing right. his hat, you know. Uh, the, the buzzer spirit. beater on, yeah, I just tried right. to get – yeah, but it, there, I think that, and it's going to depend on the jurisdiction too. I mean, in California, public money for stadiums is is virtually impossible. In other states, it's it's more readily available because the population is it isn't as pissed off about that type of thing as they are in in some places. So it's not always going to be the same. And the other point I want to make too is, and this is also working in New Yorkers' favor uh, when it comes to this deal. And if you're upset about public money going for a stadium, um, and I get that. I, I don't think that any money should be going uh, to a stadium. I think that the Pagula should have to pay for this out of their own pocket, but that's not how the business is run. And that's not the standard practice within the business. Um, so I'm covering, you know, I'm not covering this as a crusader. I'm, I'm covering right, this right. as this is what's happening and I'm telling you what's happening. Um, but the, um, the amount of money that would go to a Bills stadium, whatever it's going to turn out to be, it's not as though sports teams go with their their hat in hand to the state every couple of years because all the there's only one NFL team in the state of New York. Mm -hmm. That's the Bills. Uh, and then you have the NHL and the NBA and Major League Baseball. Well, those teams downstate are so wealthy, they build their own stadiums. Yep. So it's you're not looking at, okay, well, we're building one. But it's not like Ohio, for instance, my home state, uh, where um, you have – the Indians get a new stadium, the Cavs get a new arena, and the Browns get a new stadium, all within a few years of each other. And then down in Cincinnati, the same thing happens. Those teams used to share a stadium, but no, we're each going to get our own stadium. Think of all the money Ohio's given to stadiums. That's yeah, five stadiums right there, and that's not counting Two whatever decades, else. Three decades, you know. right. In New York, there really is only one stadium. Uh, and so, uh, and, and how much it does mean to Western New York uh, from – a holistic standpoint in terms of pride and relevancy and, you know, hasn't Western New York lost enough, you know, I'm talking about Bethlehem steel and, and whatever else problems that, you know, to lose their NFL team, obviously would it be a, would be a political uh, disaster for, for anybody who's in office at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, so that's my one thing just to say, like, I, I don't want the state to have to give any money, but it seems a little more palatable. Uh, here in New York, believe it or not, despite all our population and what happens down those those teams can afford to build their own stadiums. So they do, um, and or I should say, um, they can get they can get away with it. Uh, but the smaller the market, the more the more the public subsidy they're going to have to rely. Yeah. Like in Cincinnati, or if anything were to ever happen in St. Louis again, or in places like uh, Indianapolis. I mean, there aren't many. There aren't many stadiums that are owned by their team and were paid for by the team. I think it's six. Uh, everybody else has gotten some sort of public funding. And to I, just as a like a side gig here too, you mentioned sports betting in New York State and the revenue that's going to the tax revenue that should generate by year's end. And you also have to think about in 2023 when you know recreational and medical cannabis is actually rolled out in the state, and to think about some of the tax dollars this uh, the and, and tax revenue this state is going to be able to generate over the next two years. This maybe isn't the hit. Um, that and and listen in Western New York, 1.4 billion dollars is very different than 1.4 million dollars in Midtown Manhattan. There is just a different level of economics that 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 go into that sort of money. So I, it 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 is to me a, a really interesting in depth conversation about how the how politics and sports intertwine, which has always happened, but it doesn't tend to be the forefront of news until these negotiations tend to happen and break down. But the one thing I wanted to ask you about, just from a um, a need-to-know perspective for people that have been following along in these negotiations but may not fully understand some of the details that surround it, one of the things I get asked a lot, Tim, is about what happens over the next two years. I believe there's a 2024 or 2025 deadline on safety in the stadium as it pertains to the upper deck and how, right. uh, how long the team will be able to actually have stands in the upper deck. Is there a deadline? And if so, do you believe that the negotiations are moving in a way where that won't intersect where there's a gap, where there's a season that the Bills won't be able to have fans in that third deck, meaning they're going to have to go find somewhere else to play for a season? 
I don't think that that's a concern at all. That's nothing that I've heard. And it's something that very early on in the process, I was talking to the people, you know, various you know parties involved, whether it be with the county or the bills, you know, all the people who've done the studies and the safety uh, inspections and all those types of things. Uh, there is legitimate concern, uh, obviously, with that upper deck uh, on both sides. And uh, it's a massive expense because uh, the support columns needed uh, for that, you know, are the, are the structural supports for the entire stadium. Uh, and I don't want to get into, a, you know, a, an engineering discussion here because that's in over my head. Uh, but, you know, from the reporting I've done and the studies uh, that I've seen, uh, I don't want to use the wrong terminology or anything here on the air as I'm doing off the top of my head. But um, as those, those studies uh, that were done by the county, by the state, they, they put in a window of this, there's a, there's a structural integrity, and, and I'm saying this as a, for the sake of this discussion. I'm not, I'm, I'm not paraphrasing or like, but uh, I am paraphrasing, but I'm not using a specific example from the, from the documentation. But let's say that the structural integrity of that upper deck uh, at the time the study was conducted has a lifespan of 8 to 12 years, let's say. And the study was done seven years ago. So the belief is, well, so that you, but that doesn't mean to say everybody's got to be out there and nobody can sit up there in year eight. It, it's, right. it's a loose, it's a loose dead, um, you know, it was a uh, guideline. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to do heavy studies on these uh, every year, which they do, you know, they do their safety inspections on a regular basis and they're going to have to clo- monitor it much more closely. But they're with, they're getting within that window where it was, time to start really worrying about it. So that's the kind of what, that's the answer in a, in a roundabout way of of what you're asking there without being able to give you any specifics. There is no ticking clock or uh, because of OSHA or some other kind of government uh, policy, it's not meeting such and such requirements. So by November 1st, you're not allowed to, you know, have people sitting up there in the, in the stands. You know, you see it with the grain elevator that just had its its, its wall blown out. That's right. How how, how much uh, difference of opinion there can be as to whether or not something can stand up, um, and which is interesting. It, yeah, yeah you'd, you it look it looks like it's about ready to fall, right? Uh, but um, but everybody keeps saying, "Nah, we got time. Uh, we got time." So um, it's uh, would I have a problem sitting in the three hundred level for the next couple of years while this new stadium is being built? No. Uh, in fact, the press box is kind of in that 300 level yes, in the corner. Um, but yeah, uh, you're going to have to have faith that the county and, and, and the team and everybody involved uh, is uh, monitoring this to make sure there's there isn't a, a catastrophe. Last thing I got for you, Tim, is your report earlier this week, too, about Rob Gronkowski and the Bills' interest. This is not necessarily news, Tim, because we know dating back to last year as well, the Bills had interest in signing Rob Gronkowski. I guess this time the question would be, and I'm not sure based on your reporting if we know the answer to this, but if if there's a mutual interest between Rob Gronkowski and the Bills, because again, dating back to last year, this is the second offseason in a row we're hearing that interest is 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 sort of in-house. I, I've never gotten the sense from Rob, I don't know him personally, that he's some sort of like, hey, before I retire, I got to win one for the Gipper. I got to win one for my hometown. That doesn't that has never really struck me as, as, as like a desire of his, but he's not exactly the easiest. He's a really goofy guy, but doesn't mean he's easy to understand. Like, I, I think he's, he is a little bit more complex than he gives off. Is there mutual respect based on the fact that he was borderline interested a year ago? Uh, but the reason he didn't sign with the bills uh, is because he wanted to keep playing with Tom Brady and now there's no Tom Brady anymore. So he doesn't need to be tethered to uh, TB12, uh, and he can come home if he wants. Uh, so I, I, it's it's plausible. Uh, and is it probable? I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't write the story with any kind of in, you know wink and a right. nod information. Like I know, you know, I'm trying to be cute and, and they're in talks or anything like that. Um, not the case. Uh, I also learned that uh, you uh, and I took the line out of my story. I'd mentioned in there all his family that lives in Western New York. But before I before I filed it uh, to my editor, I double checked and his brother's 
don't all live here anymore. Uh, you know, I think only one of them still lives in Western New York. His dad is in the New England area. He's got brothers in Dallas. His mom's down in Florida. Um, so I think they still have their house that he grew up in and they all stay there when they're in town and they're here often. But so, the, um, but it's got to be an attractive situation for him uh, to be able to play the Patriots twice, to be able to play with a quarterback like Josh Allen. If he wants to keep playing, he's got you know a ton of friends and, and he still does have some family here, the whole thing. Um, it's uh, and it's a position of need for the Bills. Even as much as anybody might love Dawson Knox, and and I thought he had a great season, a breakout season. Um, Rob Gronkowski's numbers were were better than that. Uh, and uh, and wouldn't you want two of them? Uh, I, yeah. I think yes. if I'm a coach, I'd want two of them. And Rob Gronkowski's a hell of a blocker. The great yeah. thing about Rob Gronkowski, what makes him so great for an offense, isn't necessarily his st- statistical production with in receiving. It's the fact that when he's on the field, you don't know what's coming. Uh, and the Bills in their history have been unfor- it's been unfortunate for them. They've always had tight ends who did one thing and not two things. Uh, it was Lee Smith or, you know, it was Charles Clay or, you know, it was always, you know, you, you couldn't you couldn't put somebody out there. And 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 now you can Scott Chandler, another one. Uh, but now with a guy like Rob Gronkowski, the defense sees him out there and it's they don't automatically say, well, here's a pass coming. Yeah, right. Here, right. Here's a run coming. No, they it's there's a versatility there that I think is very attractive to the Bills. I um I, I guess I can't really let you leave before I ask you uh, uh, about Ty Dunn's piece because it sort of dropped while Jeremy and I were on air and we're sort of like reading that that thing you do when you, you know you you've been in radio you know how this goes where like your co-host is reading a line and then you're trying to go a little bit below that so that you can sort of speed read through a long piece <laughs> you're teaming Jeremy, up on it yeah that's right um so we were kind of doing that together this morning and I, I found myself much like a lot of Ty Dunn pieces you know sort of glued to the page uh, wanting more and and i think that's pr- 